Okay, we will be looking at uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 10 through 18, and, and uh, by way of not having, to come, not having to come up with two different titles, I titled this part 2 of foundation, uh, Founder of Salvation. So this morning, in this section, uh, <clears throat> in this section, basically, uh, what he's going to do in verse 10 is he's going to, he's going to tell us who the everybody of verse 9 is, uh, as being those who, who uh, for whom Christ de- uh, died, who suffered death. Uh, the death that was for the many sons, uh, experienced by the son, making Jesus the founder of the many sons. That's got a little complicated, but at any rate, that's the idea. Uh, and uh, um, and and uh, as we get into this, this is a section about Jesus' redemptive work. He's still in the section about Jesus is superior to angels, but the reality here is is Jesus is superior because he is the foundation of salvation. Uh, angels didn't save you. Angels couldn't save you. They ministered to you, but they can't save you. And that's, the, that's really the point here. And he's going to kind of define the purpose of the incarnation as we move through this, as we move through this section. So uh, that's, what we're going to be, uh, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we finish up chapter 2. And then we will, we will be moving on to the fact that Jesus is better than Moses. So we're, uh, we're going to start moving into that section as well. This section is also going to, for the first time, introduce Jesus as the high priest which will be a major theme through uh, uh, a large part of the book of, uh, uh, the book of Hebrews. So here's going to be the first mention of that as well as we move through the, through the text this morning. So, so the one who created the angels and created all that is, is also the founder of salvation. That's what we're going to be told as we move, as we move, into, uh, as we move into the text this morning. So before we do, uh, do we have any prayer requests? You don't have to, but if you do, you want to take a time for it. If not, Michael, I'm going to ask you to, uh, to open us this morning, please. Uh, or we just think that we gather here, uh, uh, we could continue to grow and learn word and way. Uh, or that just may uh, fill us up for edification for... Uh, Fellowship with you, and that may uh, serve on you. Name we pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at chapter two, starting at verse ten. For it was fitting that he of uh, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing in many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sacrificed and or for he who who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God have, has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helped, but he helped the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So this morning, we're, first of all, we're going to look at uh, Jesus as the captain of our salvation in verse 10. Um, it starts out by saying, it was fitting that he, and the he in this context is God the Father. That's who he's talking about initially. God the Father saw it fitting uh, for whom and by whom all things exist. That's describing God, the Father here, and, uh, uh, and bringing many sons to glory uh, should be made the founder of their salvation, talking of Jesus being, predict, uh, being perfected through, through suffering. This, uh, this word here where he says, it was fitting. It's a reference to God the Father saying that, that uh, uh, for whom all things existed, and by all things existed, Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, says that, 
for from him and through him and to him all are all things. This this word is is the idea. It was right. What he did was right. What he did was consistent within his character, his person, his power, his glory, his holiness. That that's the idea. This word is expressing here uh, that he it was it was in keeping with his love. It was in keeping with his grace. Those are the ideas that he that he's talking about here. And he and he and also that it's important to realize that that glory which God shares with no one is shared with the Son, which speaks to his deity. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, it says, yet for, uh, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came, and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and, and through whom we live. So there is that connection. He starts off here with God and the Son, Working together is the idea. It was fitting that God would have his son, that's the idea that he's saying here, become the founder of our salvation. That he should be made the the founder of our salvation to bring many sons to glory, which defines the everyone of verse 9. It's the many. Um, You need to be, I didn't really answer that question too good that caught me off guard last week, but the reality is here, is here that, Wherever you see universal language in Scripture as related to salvation, it's always defined usually within the next verse or the previous verse or at least the context. And it's always defined as the many. Uh, there's the every and there's the many. And that's, that's what he's saying here. You know, John 3.16 said, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. But he qualifies it, whoever believed. And that's the qualifier. That's where it applies. And that's what he's saying here. The application of the tasting death for everyone is applied to the many whom he saves. That's, that's, that's the context that, it, that, is going, that is going on here. So he's saying, he's saying it was fitting. It was fitting to bring many sons to glory. The everyone that tasted death in ver, verse 9. And this points to, or it at least implies, the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. He died in our stead. That's, that's, uh, that's what's, being, that's what's being, uh, being expressed here. It was fitting for God to have Jesus, his only begotten son, die for me and all of you. That's what he did. He died in our place. Rightfully, we belonged on that cross. But he took it. And he bore it. And as a result of that, he became the founder of our salvation. This is an interesting word that I had a lot of fun with. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, it's archaeos. It has several different nuances that it can be used uh, to express. It could be uh, used to mean leader, uh, the originator. It's uh, defined in chapter 12, verse 2, as, as the pioneer. Uh, one commentator said he drilled. Uh, he was the trailblazer. He cut the path is the idea uh, there. It's the same word uh, used in, in 12.2. It's going to come back up again. Uh, but uh, uh, it's also it's, it's used in some places to mean prince. And uh, the King James translates it captain. So while I'm not really a King James guy, I'm a new American Standard guy. But uh, 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 I like the King James, what they said. Uh, he's the captain. He's the leader. That's the idea here. When I, uh, when I had the privilege of, uh, of uh, joining a little club, and they sent me to a place called Fort Ord, and uh, I did basic infantry training there. And uh, at the, there, was, there was a place where we billet, and it was the, uh, we called it the hill because it was up high. And after we were trained all day down low, we had to run back up there. It was six miles every day, so that was fun. But anyway... Anyway, on that hill was a statue, and this statue was of an infantry officer. And oh, by the way, sorry about this, Warren, but BMW didn't come up with the idea of, of uh, uh, um, the ultimate in their advertising. Uh, that statue said, the ultimate weapon, U.S. infantryman. <laughs> <laughs> and that statue was there for a long time. But underneath the guy, he was standing there with his weapon and 
troops are behind him and he's got his arm up in the air. It said, follow me. That's the picture here. That's the picture here. That's what Jesus tells us. That's what he told all of his disciples as he called them, follow me. That's what he tells you and I, pick up your cross and follow me. That's the picture here. He's the one who led us into salvation. He's the one who originated salvation. He's the one that cut the trail of salvation as the pioneer. Uh, And he's the one who leads his troops. Uh, One commentator made the mention that that, uh, Jesus, as our captain, leads his army to heaven. That's, That's... what he's saying here. Uh, that's the idea here. I think it's kind of interesting Then Revelation 19, uh, in 19.14, he leads that army back when he mounts that white horse. He's in front. He's not standing behind. He's not like the uh, medieval kings that sent their troops into battle while they stood on a hill and watched it. He's at the head. That's the picture here. He's the founder He's the founder, he's the leader, he's the organizer, he's the one who pioneered it all, and he's the captain who leads us. That's, that's the picture he wants us to understand here. And then he, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> he goes on to say, he goes on to say, uh, uh, he, he says they were perfected through suffering. And the idea here, this word perfected, uh, has a, has has the meaning of bringing something to completion or, or, or to, to bring something to an end. And, and that's, that's what he's expressing here. He brings us all the way to the completeness of that, of that salvation. That is a completed idea uh, for us. In the mind of God, it's already finished. For us, we're traveling through it. But, but that's the idea. And, and, of course, he suffered. We have numerous passages that refer to the suffering Christ did on our behalf. And he expects that in this world we will suffer also. And he says he brings us through that. Through all of that, he brings us to that perfect salvation, ultimately. He brings us to that end. Hebrews 5, uh, verse uh, 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, same word, coming to that end, uh, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Uh, that's, that's, what he, that's, that's the idea here. Second Peter says he suffered as an example for us to follow, Second Peter uh, 2.21, that he became, so he is the founder he is the founder, and he had to suffer to get there, and we will probably as well along the route. Uh, but the point is we are to follow him. He's the founder of our salvation. He's the captain of salvation. He's the one who leads. And secondly, he's the captain of sanctification. Jesus is the captain of sanctification. Verse 11, uh, verse 11 uh, 12 and 13. He says this, For he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them uh, brethren, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So here he, he, he not only is Jesus the one who founded our salvation, He's the one who sanctifies us or makes us holy. Sanctified has a couple of a couple of nuances as well. It's it comes from the basic the root word in in Greek for holiness or holy. Um, it sometimes is translated righteousness, uh, and it uh, it also carries the idea of having been set apart. Now that's that is uh, another part of this word, and, and and it carries that that idea too. Here he's talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's what he has done, uh, because this is talking about our positional sanctification. Sanctification has two two. What would be the right word? Facet. Uh, two facets. Thank you. Two facets to itself. It it uh, one is is. Positional sanctification. When you, when Christ, when Christ applied salvation to you because of your faith, uh, 
which was given to you by his grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. When that happened, at that moment, you were made righteous, holy. He imputed his righteousness to you. When God looks upon you, and this is why your prayers are heard and you come boldly into the throne of grace, is because God sees Jesus. That's, that's the bottom line. He sees the blood of Christ covering you and making you righteous. Therefore, you're acceptable. That's, that's positional sanctification. But, well, not but, also, in this life, while we're going through this life, obviously, I don't think anybody in this room is going to say, yes, I'm completely righteous. If you do, you better... Well, anyway, uh, not a good idea. Let me put it that way. He, he basically, but positional sanctification is the progression in our maturing as believers while we're still walking on this earth, while we're still, while we're still in our mortal bodies. That's progressive sanctification. Paul, uh, Paul described it in 2 Corinthians uh, 5, uh, well, man, sorry, uh, he described it in uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 as being transformed from glory to glory. That's the way he, he saw it. It's a progression. It's a progression of, tra- of that transformation uh, that he talked about in 12.1 of being transformed into the image. So here here is that 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 is not what he's talking about here. He's talking about he's talking about positional sanctification. And because and it's because of Jesus in in 10:10 in Hebrews 10:10 uh, the author wrote and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of 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 Christ of Jesus Christ once for all. Uh, that's that's positional sanctification. We have we have been justified. There we stand. We stand in Him, um, and as because of that, we are then seen as holy. Uh, in Second Corinthians five twenty one, Paul wrote, "He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him." In ten fourteen of Hebrews. Or is that the one I already just read? No, that was 10.10. 10.14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's positional sanctification. You have been perfected for all times. In the eyes of God, you are what you are becoming. That's, that's, that's the idea, positionally. And then he makes this statement, and this is kind of interesting, I, I, uh, because... Here at this church, we, the, all the teaching ministry seems to be with the ESV. I moved to an ESV, so I'm getting used to it, and the pages stick. So, <laughs> At any rate, uh, you know that story with the new Bible. Uh, anyway, it says one source. He says that sanctification, uh, it, it all comes from one source. I kind of went through a, a number of translations to see uh, exactly what they said. The King James says one, just says one. Uh, the NASB says one father. The, wa- the father is in italics. It's in t- italics because he added that to help give understanding. Uh, the NIV simply says same family. They're all kind of correct uh, because the word that is used there is what the King James said, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't mean that. <laughs> I'm picking on her because she's a King James person. Uh, but uh, uh, the word that's used there is one. That's what it says. We're one. That's the point. It all came from one place. It all came from one area. It all came from one, as the New American Standard says, Father. As the NIV says, we're all in the same family. This is the point here. This is the point. Jesus made us one. Uh, this is why we use, this is why we see throughout Scripture and why we use the 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 word brethren. Uh, that's that's the idea here. He put us into one family. That's 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 what he's talking about when he uses this word. Uh, the source for the ESV is God. The family is God's. The one is God. The Father, of course, from the NASB, is God. That's the idea. 
And, and we are told that Jesus is now unashamed to call them brothers. He not only saved us, but he took us into his family. He made us brethren. And of course, that word brethren applies to ladies as well. It's, it's, it's an all-encompassing term. It means, it means all those who are saved <laughs> have become part of that, that brotherhood. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Paul wrote, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There he says, he says, you have become a joint heir with Jesus Christ. He is the son, he is the heir, but he, we, he shares that heirship with us. I don't know if that's a real term, but anyway. Uh, he, he shares that with us. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, that's what he's, he's trying to go. He, here's what he's trying to say in the sanctification. We have been ra- made righteous before God. Not only that, we have been brought into his family. We are family. All who have put their trust in Jesus Christ are one family. That's, that's what he's trying to tell us here. We all belong to him and to one another in a family. We're all related. First John 3, 1. Yes. Thank you. That's exactly correct. And then in verse 12, he quotes Psalms 22, 22, which Psalms 22 has always been seen as a messianic, uh, a messianic psalm. Uh, but in this particular one, he picks out verse 22, and he says, I will tell, and this is speaking of Jesus, saying that Jesus says this, I will tell your names to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is a powerful thought here. Jesus is going to testify that each one of us is part of his family. In the midst of the congregation, that word is ecclesia. It's the assembly. It's the church. Within the combined collection of brotherhood, Jesus testifies, we are all his. That's what this is saying. That's a powerful statement. That's, that's what he's applying to him. I will testify of each one of us. It's kind of a sobering thought, I think. And together we sing praise is, is the, the concept here. Then he quotes from two other Old Testament passages. These are in Isaiah chapter 8. He goes to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. The context of Isaiah chapter 8, in this part of Isaiah chapter 8, is that, excuse me, Isaiah is prophesying to the faithful remnant of Israel. Israel's in a mess. You all know in Isaiah, Israel's in a mess, as usual. And, and, and uh, there's always that remnant that God protects and holds to. And in this particular section of Isaiah... Uh, Isaiah is prophesying to them, and from that, Jesus pulls these two verses and applies them uh, to himself and to, the, to us. And he, he says, first of all, I will put my trust in him. That's Isaiah 14. I will put my trust in him. Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, the context of the incarnation. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father and followed him. He did nothing of his own accord, even though he had all the power in the world. He laid that aside, it's Philippians 2. And, and he trusted in God. That's the idea here. Uh, John 5, 19. He would only do as the Father had him to do, is the idea. And basically, that's what we're called to do as brethren, is to put our trust in him. That's what faith means, to put your trust in God. Uh, that's, where, that's where you are to, to uh, find your source, that you are to do as he directs. That's, that's the idea here. And he, that's what he's saying. He's saying, that's a, that's, that's a mark of my brethren. I, again, I say, I put my trust in him. And then again, verse 18, and in verse 18, in Isaiah, the uh, picture is, oh, well, verse 18 is, Behold, I and the children God has given me. In Isaiah, verse 18 pictures Isaiah 
standing in the midst of the faithful remnant, and they're surrounding him. Jesus applying that to him. This is the picture of Jesus standing in our midst. That's what he's saying here. Just as in Isaiah, with the, with the remnant of Israel, Jesus stands with his people. Stands with his family. All of those who have put their trust in him, Jesus stands with them. He declares their name in the congregation, within the assembly, within the church. He declares our names. He stands with us, all who have put our trust in him. That's, that's, the, that's the picture that he's, that he's giving to us here. Here is Jesus standing with his brethren. That's, that's the picture that Jesus wants us to see. And then, then nextly, he goes on to verse 14 and 15, where Jesus is the captain of, the, of our victory. In verses 14 and 15, he says, For since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook, partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death, were subjected to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helped, but he helped the offspring of Abraham. So we'll stop there. Here is, he talks about the incarnation and the purpose of the incarnation. What it accomplished, part, at least in part. He says, he says, he gives a clear statement here of the purpose of the incarnation. He's speaking, uh, speaking of the common humanity, flesh and blood, which all human beings share. That's, that's part of our humanness. We live in a mortal body that is made up of flesh and blood. That's, that's kind of an obvious statement. Uh, that's who we are. He, he says, he says that, uh, um, since we all share in that, and incidentally, I just it just kind of struck me that um, in the church there is to be no distinctions. We're flesh and blood. We all came to the cross the same way. Uh, the church is made up of people of every nation, every tribe and tongue, and uh, there is no distinction. There is no ethnic distinction. There is no racial distinction. There is no economic distinction there is no gender distinction we live in a world that is defining all of those things and putting each of those at odds with each other in the church we are one united in christ Uh, the only race here is the human race that christ saved that's it that's that's it and and that's what he's saying here Uh, we all share commonly in flesh and blood and the word share that is that he is he is uh, that he uh, uses there is the word koinonia uh, which to have in common in partnership i suspect uh, look i know all of you have flesh because i can see it i suspect you all have blood (laughs) you know (laughs) Um, but uh, otherwise you wouldn't be functioning and so that's what he's saying here. Uh, we, we have that in common, that, that we fellowship together, that's a part, we participate in that. Uh, and and that's, that's what he wants us, that's what he's saying here. Now, Jesus, in his eternal state, does not share in that. He's divine. He's immortal. That's, that's the point they're going to make here. In order to save us, He had to, the next part of the verse, he had to, he had to partake of the same thing. This is a different word. This is a word, this is a word that means to take on something that's not naturally one's own. So what he's saying here is Jesus had to become incarnate. He had to take on human flesh and blood in order to save us, ultimately. That's, that's the point he's making here. He, he's telling us, he's telling us, he says, he says, since the children were, self, uh, were flesh and blood, since all of us, human beings, are made up of flesh and blood, Jesus had to take that on. Something that was not natural to him. 
he had to take on. The incarnation made it possible to partake of humankind. This is what Philippians 2 is all talking about. When it says that Jesus laid aside, didn't think it was robbery to be equal to God, because he was. But he voluntarily, this is my paraphrase, laid it all aside and took on human flesh and found in the form of a man and went to the cross. That's, that's the idea here. That's what he's talking about. He's saying the incarnation made it possible for Jesus to partake of humankind, flesh and blood. Not natural to him. And he did that so that he could die in our place, that we could then become partakers, something not natural to us, the divine nature. Second Peter one four. Oops. By which he was granted to us his precious and very great promise that so through through you um, so so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of this world because of sinful desire. Basically what it's saying here is Jesus' incarnation, his death, made it possible for us to take on the divine nature. It took on the possibility of being saved, of being sanctified, of being righteous before God. That's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's letting us know here. He did it through death. What was that verse you just read? Which, where did that come from? 2 Peter 1.4. Okay, uh, <clears throat> he says, through death. As a result of the death, a second part of the result of his death, not only was it the capability to save you by doing that, and then his resurrection as well, of course, but through death, he was able to render powerless the one who had the power of death. He's basically saying here that Satan is the killer, (laughs) in, in, in effect. He's saying it is, he's saying here, he says, uh, destroy the one who has the power of death. Satan, Satan's job, I guess you could say, is to take as many people with him as he can. Uh, he's like that, I don't, well, some of you are, may remember it, but some of you are not. Uh, but there was an old Jimmy Cagney movie where at the end of the movie he is standing on the top of a building with a, with a Tommy gun. And he's, uh, he's uh, screaming at the police who are trying to take him. Top of the world, you know, I'm going to take them all with me, is kind of the, the idea of that movie. That's Satan. He wants to take as many with him. And the means by doing that is death. And, you know, they say, well, they actually say, if you look at the surveys, that the thing that scares people most is public speaking. Uh, and uh, the second thing is death. I think the reality is death is the first thing. Because uh, public speaking is something you're going to do while you're alive, you know. <laughs> but, uh, and if you're alive, you can public speak. So, okay. But uh, if you're not, death, I think, is the one that is probably most, uh, the, the most horrendous. Uh, it's the thing that scares people. Even, even, those, even those of us who are saved sometimes look at it and go, Really, I wonder, well, what's it going to be like? What am I going to go through? What, uh, what is going to be the transition going to be like? You know, there, there's some nerves about it. It's the fear of the unknown. You know? And you hear people say, well, I hope I'm going to this, or I hope it's going to be this, or, you know. I had an Orthodox heathen who lived down the street from me, and he always, uh, he always claimed, he always claimed uh, that... Uh, uh, anytime anybody tried to speak to him about Christ is, uh, why would he want to go to heaven? He's going to go to hell and party with all of his friends. No, you're not. But anyway, 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 you know, the, the fact is people fear death. They, they fear it. But Jesus, by facing it, by taking death on, rendered Satan powerless. He doesn't have that power over you. You and I should not fear the future. It's guaranteed. It's sealed. That's the idea here. 
He disarmed the devil. When the devil went up against, went up again. I'm going to take another another uh, another movie quote here. But uh, when the when the devil went up against Jesus, he took a pocket knife to a gunfight, which is not a good idea. Uh, but nevertheless, that's what happened. Jesus was made a little lower in the angels for a little while to disarm Satan and take his brethren with him. That's that's what this text is telling us. Verse 15 goes on to say, verse 15 goes on to say, and deliver all of those who the fear of death were were subject to lifelong slavery. And and if you look at the world today and you stop and you think about it, watch the commercials on TV. Uh, if, If you watch any TV, you know, they drive me nuts. Ask your doctor about whatever some drug is, you know, uh, like the doctor doesn't know about it. So you've got to tell him I need this drug, you know, because it'll make me live longer. Well, one of the side effects is always death, though. Yeah, I know. That's the one that really gets me. You know, you know they go on about there's people running around. Yeah, good point. People are running around all happy and joyful and carrying on like, oh, I'm taking whatever it is, some name I can't pronounce. And they're running around, talk, claiming about it. And then the, in the undertone, this guy goes, the side effects are blah, 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 and death. <laughs> you know, may cause death. Oh, okay, I want that drug, please. Yeah, but... Uh, uh, but, or, or if it's not that, it's some equipment so that you can make your body better and stronger and healthier. You know, it's, it's all of those kind of things. It's all about all about catching life and living longer. It's, you know, it's like the it's like the uh, coroner said, this guy was really healthy until he got hit by that truck. You know, that's that's kind of the kind of the idea here. But it's, it's a victory. He delivered his brothers from the slavery. We don't have to fear death. Satan holds nothing over us. That's the bottom line here. He holds nothing over us. He holds nothing over us. And Paul said in, verse, in, in 1 Corinthians 15.5 that death has lost its victory in Jesus and it no longer has any sting. I suppose the reality is for those of us who will put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, we should see death as our coronation day. Ultimately. It's the day we see Jesus in the fullness of his glory. That's that's that day. That's that day. So Jesus is the captain over our victory. He's the one that won the victory. He won the victory because he became incarnate. He shared in the flesh and blood of mankind. And he went to the cross and he died and he was resurrected. And he is currently seated at the right hand of God, waiting that moment to come back. But in the meantime, he, put de- he, put, he took the ability of Satan to hold you slave as slaves because of death. He freed you from that. Because death is lost. It's swallowed in victory and there is no sting anymore for the believer. So Jesus is now seen as the captain of his brethren in verses 16 to 18, where he says this, For surely it was not angels that he helped, but he helped the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sin of the people. For because he himself has suffered with tempta- uh, uh, with, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So he comes in here at the end and he says, Look, we've gone through all of this, and who did it apply to? Not angels. He didn't die for angels. Angels are immortal. Angels were confirmed in their righteousness or their fallenness one time. They have no part in this other than they minister, and they're his messengers. But he didn't do this for angels. Angels had no need of it. The incarnation didn't identify angels with God. 
He didn't die for angels, nor does he apply grace to angels, or does he make them holy? Because holy angels are. They're confirmed in it. They have no need of it. In fact, they don't even fully understand it. They don't fully understand salvation. They watch it being worked out in you. It doesn't apply to them. They, they have no experience in it. The fallen angels don't get a second chance. They don't get a time to turn. They turned once, and it was the end for them. 1 Peter 1.12 talks about how the angels long to look into salvation. They watch it being played out in us. There are times I wonder if maybe an angel or two doesn't turn to the other one and go, why does God put up with this guy? But anyway. But at the same time, like seeing him put up with us and how magnanimous he is, that's got to be cool from an angel. Don't wreck my story. (laughs) (laughs) You're correct, though. You're absolutely correct. They're, They're praising God for his for who he is and all of that. But he says he helps the offspring of Abraham. In the Old Testament, the offspring of Abraham refers to the Jews. Well, it refers to Israel. Jews are only the tribe of Judah, actually. But, but nevertheless, uh, it never, it's been applied to all anyone now. But, but, but at any rate, it, uh, uh, it, uh, and, and Jesus was born as Abraham's seed, the son of David. That's out of the house of Judah, out of, out of Israel. However... For you and I, who have put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, we are now considered the seed of Abraham. Because Abraham is the father of all the faithful, Romans 4.16. Those whose names will be named as brethren from verse 12 are all seen as the seed of Abraham. So he's telling us here, Jesus' incarnation wasn't for the benefit of angels. It was for the benefit of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ who are the seed of Abraham. Abraham was justified by faith because he believed God long before any of the regulations of circumcision or anything else were placed upon him. He believed God and it was reckoned to him for justification. So all of those who put their their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ have become his seed. And that's for whom Christ came. That's what this text is saying. They're, they're the ones. that He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Here, once again, he's telling us, in order to help the offspring of Abraham, he had to take on humanity. He had to become incarnate. Philippians 2. That had to happen. This is kind of a summary of what he's already just said. But he's saying here once again, the, the absolute necessity of the incarnation in God's plan was that he had to take on the nature of the offspring of Abraham in order to save them. That's, 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 what, he's, that's what he's expressing here. He had to take on humanity. And in doing so, he was able to identify with us. He was able to see our weaknesses, if you will, firsthand. He was able to see our stresses and our aches and pains firsthand. He has an accurate knowledge of them, I guess you could say. And it says, as a result of that, because... because Therefore, he had to become like his brothers in every respect so that he might, here's the reason, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, the, the, the concept of Jesus as the high priest is going to run through chapter 4, 5, 7, and 8. It's going to be extensive when we get to it in explaining his priesthood. But the idea of a priest is he is the one who represents someone before God. 
in the, in the uh, Jewish system, the high priest was the one who went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and sprinkled the blood on the altar, or on the, actually on the, on, between the horns of the, of, the, uh, of the Ark of the Covenant. He's the one who did all of that. He, it, was a, it was a dangerous thing to do. In fact, uh, according to Josephus, uh, they, tie, they put bells around the bottom of his uh, robes, and they tied a rope to his leg just in case he messed up so they could drag his body out. I don't know. He doesn't record that. There's no, there's no record that that ever did happen. But, but the fact of the matter is, that's the idea. It's saying here, he's the high priest who stood before God on our behalf. That's what, he's, that's what this is going to all develop. Uh, in, in ancient Israel, there was the prophet, the priest, and the king. Jesus is all three. He, he is the prophet of God. He is the high priest. He is our high priest, and he is our king. All of those things are true of him. And here, he, here is the first mention of him as high priest. Hebrews 4.15 for, uh, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here's the point. Jesus can identify with us. Well, Jesus can identify with my weaknesses, with your weaknesses. Not that he, he ever succumbed to any of them. He did not. He did not sin. But yet he felt them. He understood them. He saw them playing out from a human perspective. That's what this is saying here. As a result, he is able, he's able to identify He's able to identify even the temptations that we face because he faced them. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the next verse. But he faced them as well. And as a result of the fact that he became human, was able to to understand us and represent us accurately before God, both as faithful and merciful, He was able to make propitiation. I'm sure you've all probably, I've, if you've been around this church any time at all, I know you've heard what propitiation is a dozen times. Uh, but nevertheless, propitiation means to make atonement. It basically says that the, that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was, was what satisfied the wrath of God. Its word picture is that it turns the red, hot, angry face of God white at peace with you. That's the picture here. I kind of think it's a good thing not to have the God of the universe mad at you. That's what propitiation means. God is not mad at me. That's, that's the idea here. He, it's to appease or to atone. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sakes he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what propitiation did. That's, that's That's the result of it. And then in verse 18 he goes on to say, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I suspect that's all of us in this room are those that are being tempted. In the incarnation, Jesus suffered temptation, probably most notably in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, when, he, when, he, when he, his encounter with Satan who tempted him over and over again. At a time when he was at the weakest because he had been fasting for days. 
he was tempted, but he didn't sin. The result of that, though, is because he went through all of that, he understands what you face. To cave in to the temptation. To surrender to it. To take the easy, the seeming easy way out. It'll only be easy for a moment. Uh, but it'll be the seeming easy way out. He says, he, he suffered that. He, kno- he knows about that. Which means he's able to help us. He's able to help us in that. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in whom every respect has been tempted as we have been tempted, yet without sin. That's the idea here. That's who, we, that's who our Jesus is. He's one who knows what we face. And in fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that he has always made a way to escape, this, to escape uh, the temptation. And he also tells us in that verse that you're not facing anything anybody else didn't face. Everybody faces it. But there's always a way of escape. And the way of escape is Jesus Christ. He's the trailblazer. He set the path. He's our captain. He's called us to follow him. Any comments or questions this morning? Yeah. <laughs> this is not uh, what you were doing, but in uh, <laughs> verse 12, I always like this because I always look for singing in the scripture. And in verse 12, it talks about Jesus singing praise to God. Yep, with us. So, so cool. Yeah. Jesus yeah. singing. And the, there's three different places at least that yeah. the Bible talks about Jesus singing. And just a few minutes, we can go sing. Okay, let's close. Father God, we thank you this morning as we've looked at this text. We thank you for Jesus who is so many things to us, but basically is the captain of our soul. He is the one who leads us, who guides us. He is the one we are to follow. He's the one that set the path. He's the one that has set everything in place for us. And he's done it all through his blood and his death. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that because of him, this morning we can come boldly into your throne room and know that you hear us and that you're at action before we even ask. And Father, we, we thank you that that. He has turned your anger away. Your wrath no longer falls upon us. But that we have been made part of your ever family. And we've been made an heir with Christ. And we look forward to that day when with Jesus we all sing praises and glory. And we would thank you in his blessed name. Amen.